Hello and welcome to the latest Marathon Bet podcast with me, Danny Kelly, and him, former Crystal Palace owner, chairman these days, journalist, author, and all the rest of it, Simon Jordan. As you've been hearing, if you've been listening to any of the podcasts, and if you haven't, you can get hold of the whole series after listening to this one. This theme that we're doing this time round are football's seven deadly sins. And today, we're going to concentrate on the sin of greed. I know, I know, you're going to say every single thing about football is to do with greed. We'll soon find out who is greedy and who isn't in the course of this Marathon Bet podcast. Coming up this week... Now, greed, Simon, is defined in the dictionary, if you leave out gluttony, which is a greed for food, yep. uh, greed is defined as an unstoppable desire for money and power. Players will then turn around and say, I don't want win bonuses, I want guarantees, I want it in my basic wage, I want it in my sign-on, I want it in my loyalty bonuses, and then you give them all that, and then they said, actually, oh, by the way, remember that kind offer that you gave us about win bonuses, I'll have that as well. Is it the players in modern football who are greedy for money, or is it the agents? Agents are in some people's minds, a necessary evil to serve a greater good. I've seen the evil. I'm struggling to find some of the good. Did you ever have the satisfaction of saying to a player or an agent or a parent even, because I know they're involved, just say, no, you're not getting that? Oh, absolutely. And I got the delight of getting promoted to the Premier League and sitting with him and his agent saying, I couldn't care less whether you (laughs) sign new contracts or not. Before myself and Simon get stuck in uh, to greed... We got some responses from you to last week's show about anger and to the seven deadly football sins in general. Don't forget, you can tell us anything you want at Marathon Bet Pod on Twitter, at Marathon Bet Pod. Among those who've been in touch is Blair, who wants to make a nomination for the angriest person in football. Blair says Roy Keane is up there. Sadly, though, Keane has become a meme. He knows that this persona gets him gigs on ITV and Sky, even as Ireland's assistant he put on a show in his press conferences. I think he's great entertainment. Me too. I think actually he's all fair. I think he's angry. I mean, what was it, Alfie Inga Haaland? <laughs> Ask him if he was angry when he was playing, yeah. But I think what you get from Keane is a little bit of intolerance of some of the banal drivel he gets to listen to next to him on the couch. I, of course, know the exact words from his book that he said to Haaland when he hurt him. Yes, I, I don't do mean to repeat yeah. them uh, in this platform. And these are some other people who've just got a view on what is the worst sin in football. Okay. Uh, Paul Palmer spitting at someone. Well, we all know that. Pretty base. In this country, it seems to be, in Britain at least, the absolute worst thing you can do. On the continent, they're a little bit more tolerant of it. Fighting pretty rank as well yeah uh, that one, absolutely it? North Manchester Ath says that the biggest sin in pro football is declaring intent to leave for one of your rivals he's referring specifically to Gabriel Heinzer who wanted to go from Manchester United to Liverpool and do you know who they were going to use to do that Palace yeah. they were trying to sell him to Palace to flip him on to Man United or the other way around Sean Dunning says uh, commentators talking about the magical Anfield atmosphere while you can actually hear the players shouting at each other well Sean I oh, think I don't know about that no, I, I think I've been at Anfield and, I've, and I've, some of those yeah, Champions League yeah, nights in yeah. the last uh, year or so give the lie to that Sean but you're entitled to your opinion and finally for this lot uh, Stuart H. Riley uh, says joint scarves utterly horrendous idea and of course he's talking about the half and half scarves that are on sale outside every ground I don't think any British football fan over the age of 10 has ever bought one right they're mind, all yeah. for tourists aren't they absolutely yeah, right that's a souvenir that said they've been to the game look you can have your views of anything myself and Simon say your views about the deadly sins that are in football or even about the greed that we're going to talk about in this podcast and again that address for you to get in touch with this is at Marathon Bet Pod so let's start in a, a week when once again we've seen two of our historic football clubs Bolt Wanderers are founder members of the Football League and Bury, an important community club for 130 plus years in the centre of absolute financial turmoil. To what extent are modern football owners, in the old days they used to be kind of well-intentioned entrepreneurs, stroke curators if you like, caretakers. To what extent are now the modern football owners 
literally just out for themselves and money, are they greedy? There's a certain type of owner that is greedy and there's a certain type of owner that's now coming into football predominantly outside of the Premier League and specifically in the two examples that you bring to the fore with this week's news surrounding Bolton and Berry and the deadlines that are being put on them by the Football League. There is an element of greed, a great element of irresponsibility that's going with the greed as well because greed in itself, to my mind, is a balancing act. Gordon Gecko once said greed is good. Greed sometimes is good, a greed for knowledge, a greed for ambition, a greed to push things forward. But when you've got a football club that you have a greater responsibility for, greed is not something that should be at the foremost of your thinking. If you've got an opportunity and you've built that football club and you've paid for that football club and there's an element of someone wanting to buy that football club from you and repay your some of your investment and the greed to get that money back or the greed to prosper from it, well, that's an almost, I suppose, an almost an acceptable greed. But looking at the specific examples of, say, Berry, for example, I'm very conflicted because my first reaction when I saw this subject matter was to take a great deal of empathy with the incumbent owner. And having spoken to him and seen what the Football League looked like they were doing to him, I felt this guy's in a very invidious position. It's unfair. It's unjust. Now I look at it very differently. I look at the fact that there is a situation where somebody's walked into a football club, taken advantage of a football club's malaise or ails, taken it from nothing, put nothing into it, put it into a CVA, which is a creditor's voluntary arrangement, which is a way to suppress liabilities and reduce them to the lowest level that you possibly can. So you're currently in there for nothing. It's currently cost you nothing. You're reducing the liabilities that you've said you'll take on. And now what you're doing is actually holding the club to ransom because it's an emotive object, because it's a community proposition. And what this guy is doing, in my view, is he's trying to shake somebody down to pay him for him being Johnny on the spot. And that kind of greed, by Johnny on the spot, I mean the guy that took the club, ultimately took it for nothing, and has seen an opportunity that this is a proposition that people don't want to see fold. There is cash in this club. There is money that's not being paid over by the Football League. There is money that will fund this football club going forward, and there is a probably a viable way to run it. He just doesn't want to do it. What he wants to do is shake it down and see who's going to pay him off a million quid or a million quid for the aggravation factor that he's presenting by being in the way. Oh, you've got a similar situation. Uh, I know as a former Crystal Palace chairman, you might be laughing at the sleep at it. It's going to Charlton Athletic, where yep. the owner there has run the club extraordinarily badly and yet still feels he's entitled to a payout. Yeah, I mean, the conflict there is is that he has paid money for this club and he, his argument, Roland de Chatelet, is that he bought a football club, he didn't understand the dynamics of it and he didn't understand what was expected and he didn't understand what staff he had and so on and so forth. And of course... That's a scant excuse now because if you didn't understand that, you should have understood it. If you don't believe the staff that you had there were representing you properly, it was incumbent upon you to change those staff and so on and so forth. Where the greed comes in potentially with Charlton is that this man is professing that this football club is making his life a misery and that ultimately it's a miserable place for him to be and the EFL were irresponsible, English Football League, in ever allowing him to buy it. Yet the moment they got promoted... I think I was doing a show somewhere else with you or someone. The first thing I said was, well, that's a difficulty now because the 30 million quid that he thought he wanted, that he thought he was owed, is now going to become 50 million quid because he just won't be able to help himself. And so greed 
in that respect, it's probably going to impoverish his life because it's going to make him subject to the more abuse that he doesn't want anyway because he can't go to games and all he's being given is abuse by the Charlton fans. It's also probably going to cost him his manager in the long run, Lee Bowyer, who's doing a tremendous sure. job there, as much as it galls me to think that Charlton, <laughs> anyone at Charlton is doing a tremendous job. And also the fans, because they're going to be done out of some sort of progress with somebody that actually wants to be involved with their club rather than somebody that's got it completely wrong is now trying to profit out of it. I know I have in various uh, platforms and in various shows prodded you with this before but I want people listening to the Marathon Bet podcast to understand this because to me a football club is a very uncomplicated business to run unlike many businesses the revenue streams are reasonably visible you've got crowds coming through the door you've got sponsorship deals and you've got a bit of TV if you're lucky enough to get that and the costs of the club are whatever you have to pay to maintain the stadium for use once every week or two weeks plus a load of employees you happen to include footballers why do chairman and owners find it so hard to run clubs on a financially correct level basis? Well, that's a $64 million question. Now that the Premier League has reached a point where its income is at such a level and the ability to manage, it's all about wage percentage, it's not about anything else. There are a lot more complicated facets than the simplified distilled version that you've put down because you have youth development, you have a variety of other things that cost inordinate amounts of money alongside the seemingly simple operation of opening a football club once every two weeks or a football stadium once every two weeks. The dynamic of getting the wages right what has really created the inability or the great difficulty to run a football club on an operational basis and by operational basis I mean not having to sell players to plug the gap it's part of it but running a club from an operating profit point of view doesn't necessarily include selling players what's really created the difficulty and almost impossibility in certain divisions namely the championship is the drip down effect that the Premier League has had and the element of greed that players will have when they are actually being relegated from teams and culpable for the relegation, that they don't accept any responsibility for it and believe to some extent that they should have the same wages outside of the Premier League as they do in the Championship. And it causes an imbalance and a very great difficulty because if your wage ratio goes above 65 to 70% in terms of your wages against your turnover, you're really starting to struggle to get into any kind of operating profit or any break-even perspective. And then you find yourself in the championship with a lot of those clubs getting into 80, 90, 100, 110%, 200% of your Aston Villa a couple of seasons ago, you're talking about almost 200% of your turnover is gone in wages. Which in any other world of business, uh, one of the outside directors that is brought in to oversee this stuff will put a stop to in three yeah. months. First time he saw it in the books, he'd say that come, but it doesn't stop in football. Well, it doesn't stop in football. And of course, you know, you can look at other aspects of football and say, well, is greed driving the PFA? Why does a PFA they need 1% of the TV revenues for £27 million a year so that Gordon Taylor can pay himself £2.5 million a year. There's a fine example of greed because ultimately it's the world's smallest union that can afford to buy Monet paintings for the wall but perhaps doesn't do as much as what it should do, doesn't do what it says on the can. Greed pervades all aspects of the landscape of football. OK, let me just ask you one more question about the owners and then we'll get on to their employees. I mean, you've been through it and fell foul of it, Simon, to the tune of how many millions? 50-odd. 50-odd million pounds. Is there actually money to be made for the owners of football clubs? There's far easier industries to be in to make money. But football, in my view, when I bought Palace 
in 2000 and came through the door as a 31-year-old, it wasn't just about how much money I might be able to make. It was about the challenge and the ambition and the feeling of worth. You know, the ideals of the cook, the candlestick maker and the baker owning football clubs may have disappeared, but there's still an inherent value and responsibility that you have in owning a football club. And that can almost be offset by the desire to make money if you're reasonable and pragmatic in your thinking. The difficulty is, is that you're chasing an ambition if you don't create a culture inside your football club that has aspiration at its centre and the greed for achievement is something fans have to take responsibility for in the same way that owners do. Oh, we'll come do. on to them. Don't worry yeah. about that. Is a very challenging business, but lots of businesses are challenging. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with a challenging business. And there's something challenging about trying to defy conventional wisdom and do something slightly different. And there are a few people that are trying to do that in this day and age. Well, you talked about the biggest single issue inside of these football clubs, even if you're greedy enough to want to make a lot of money out of them as an owner are the employees. And, of course, it strikes me that uh, we often forget there are three classes of employees, aren't there? There's the people who run the club, administrators, the guys who run the ticket office, all the rest of it, the players. And, of course, then you've got another subset of employees. They're agents who are making massive money. You might not even see their face most of the time. So tell me, let me answer you this question with all your experience. I know you've you've had your ins and outs with these people. Is it the players in modern football who are greedy for money or... Is it the agents and that the players are hiding behind the agents? It's a bit of both. I think the system in football, greed is at its centre and sometimes greed is purifying, as I said at the top of the show. The wonderful thing about landing in the Premier League as a football club owner is that there is one consistent agenda, the pursuit of money. Now, whether that's greed or whether it's a natural progression of business and evolution, some people could say a hedge fund owner that's making 100 million that's now trying to make a billion is greedy. Sam Allardyce could have been considered greedy when he was given the ideal job at England for three and a half million pound a year, but couldn't stop himself going to a meeting. There's a balance between greed and commercial opportunity. And foolishness. And foolishness and, 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 and disregard for your responsibility. Agents are in some people's minds, a necessary evil to serve a greater good. I've seen the evil. I'm struggling to find some of the good in agents. The nature of the game itself and its immaturity by bringing duality back, which enables agents to represent transactions at both ends. When the old days or the most recent times when I was there was that agents could only operate for one side of the equation, either the player or the club and not both. And seemingly when the game has gone stellar, somehow or another the game decides that it's going to allow agents to be unregulated again and go back to them being able to represent both sides of the equation. So to go to your question, Dan, I think agents are greedy. I think players use them for an excuse. I think agents are motivated by their own ends and it's not always for the best interest of the player. But really and truly... It is the player's greed. It is the player's motivation, the using of an agent as their stooge. And an agent's greed is just opportunism. But you must understand just to return to the need for agents, and of course there are some terrible, terrible people out there, you must understand you can't have a situation where you, Simon Jordan, or Daniel Levy, is sat across the table from some 18-year-old who's just left school trying to do the deal. That would look horrendous. That's, but that's why you have a union. That's why you have the you PFA. You think the PFA should be doing oh, this? I do absolutely think that's the case. I think that their desire to rinse £27 million from the game with respect to Gordon Taylor, which means with no, no respect, respect whatsoever. But let's just call it the painting money, shall sure, we? Sure, <laughs> that they should be representing their players at stages in their careers when young boys are coming into a man's game and dealing with grown-up businessmen that have an understanding of the value of something or how to extract the best from them out of the deal. But a deal is something that works for both sides. And what I always found 
with agents was that no matter how hard you tried to facilitate a solution, the more you gave, the less they gave back. And I found that level of greed unacceptable. So what I did in my time was remove myself from the equation and put chief executives in the role and gave them parameters of which they could operate within, to which end if they couldn't get the deal done within those parameters, they could then refer to me rather than being the money in the room, then being put to being confronted by greed in its most purest form and finding that intolerable. Are footballers' contracts very similar to normal business contracts or are they, as I suspect, I'm a mad hodgepodge of ideas, last-minute insertions, the agent's needs, what they like. Well, footballers' contracts are a multitude of sins. They start with people being given bonuses for walking through the door. They start with people being given bonuses for giving you the privilege of staying for a year under the guise of a loyalty bonus. They start with appearance bonuses that should be included in their basic wage. And they go on and go on. And ultimately, you know, you try to give trade-offs and try and do deals with players about win bonuses. And players will then turn around and say, I don't want win bonuses. I want guarantees. I want it in my basic wage. I want it in my sign-on. I want it in my loyalty bonuses. And then you give them all that. And then they said, actually, by the way, remember that kind offer that you gave us about win bonuses? I'll have that as well. And that kind of greed made me find it very difficult to contend with the thinking of players and agents because there was no pragmatism in it. There was no equality in negotiations. I, I, I know you reasonably well, Simon. We've worked together and we've known each other a long time. I can't imagine that this stuff didn't drive you... It did. It drove me insane. Off, yeah, off it, drove me, it drove me to distraction. It took away every ideal that you had. You know, the greed that you saw from certain players. I mean, I can pick players and turn around and say that they were getting half a million pound promotion bonuses and thought that that wasn't good enough a la Neil Shipley. Or you can talk about players that are coming down like Adi Akinbae that came down, that you knew had a house in the area, that still had to, had to have their £10,000 relocation expenses because they had to have it. You know, and you look at the one-way transaction that football can be when, you know, when, when again, Adi Akinbae has a knee operation. He can have it in this country and I send him off to Richard Stedman and pay £20,000 to, to have his knee done. And Adi's repayment for that was to not bother turning up to appearances because all he cared about was what he got. You know, so greed is a destructive element and it brings in a thinking inside football of entitlement. And I think there's an entitlement that runs alongside greed that is almost as unpalatable as greed in its finest form. I'm very sad to hear that a lot of your joy at owning the club that you supported and that your dad played for was taken away by various manifestations of avarice, shall we say, to just, yeah. just avoid using the word greed all the time. Yeah. Did you ever have the satisfaction of saying to a player or an agent or a parent even, because I know they're involved, just say, no, you're not getting that? Oh, absolutely. Michael Hughes was a player that I had nothing but problems with. The problem that you have is when you're an owner and a manager is convinced he wants a player, it plays straight into the narrative of that player. So anything that player then thinks he's entitled to, he's got an accomplice in achieving. Um, and Michael Hughes was one of those that was somebody that I felt didn't operate in the way that was in the best interest of the club. I believe it was him that sold a story on the eve of the playoff final to the newspapers about the players being in disrepute because their bonuses hadn't been paid, which wasn't true. And they were using the currency of a playoff final to try and get me to pay bonuses they weren't due at that time. And I got the delight of getting promoted to the Premier League and sitting with him and his agent saying... I couldn't care less whether you sign new contracts or not. Here's the news. We're a Premier League club, and guess who needs the other person greater than I need you? So you can stay. You can go. You can take a pay cut, actually, for staying. And I couldn't care less if you sign or not. Of course, that is the dream of every football yeah. fan listening to What's this. What's a moment? How yeah. much did you enjoy it? I listen, I enjoyed sending Tim Cahill's agent out the door with a flea in his ear about the, my lack of preparedness to pay his agent's fee. But everything has a cause and an effect and a consequence, Stan. 
And sometimes you can be greedy for these moments of retribution where you serve people up. And then you think, you know, I was greedy to serve Ian Dowie with a writ in front of Charlton because I wanted to wreak havoc on him and, and have some That was a lust for vengeance, which may itself yeah, be a major may, sin. It may well be, yeah. Do you know what, Simon? I mean, we talk about the players. I mean, it's a constant sore with football fans, the amount of money they earn and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you think there's a bigger culprit in all of this. I mean, there's many other culprits too, but the Premier League, which has, of course, largely got the most fabulous PR, it will have a thousand people a day will say or write or broadcast or podcast that is the greatest league in the world. And yet, I wonder whether it itself is the product of greed and whether it's greed is having some very, very unhelpful effects, like, and I say this, a few days after we've seen cricket on the front pages of the newspapers, washing away all the other sports in this country and taking up so much of the sport's attention, goodwill and money that could be spread more widely. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just a natural landscape of how sports find themselves and football being the paramount sport in this country is always going to occupy the most precedence. What I don't like and what I find is the real avarice and greed in the Premier League is the elite clubs within the confines of the Premier League taking all of the good parts of collective bargaining, collective responsibility, transfer deals being done in a certain way, the benefits of association by the membership of the Premier League and then suggesting that they are the only reason why the Premier League has any value around the rest of the world and thus they should be taking all the money from it. Now, of course I understand that there are marquee brands in anything that you have. In any, if you walk into a supermarket, there are marquee brands on the shelves and we know what they're there for. And there are marquee brands in the Premier League. We know who they are. They're Manchester United, they're Liverpool, they're Arsenal, they're Man City, they're Tottenham, they're Chelsea and so on and so forth. But the greed that they have will end up with by throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Because if you break this league up, if you turn it into something that it's not, and you start to divide and try and conquer as a result of it, which is what these clubs are trying to do, then the idea of building football to an even bigger financial level so that the Premier League can reimburse its clubs in even greater terms, it can feed the ravenous beast that seems to be the endless demands of football players and football agents and football managers to keep on being remunerated to a level that's becoming deeply unpalatable, it can also then feed some of the responsibilities that the greed of the Premier League, because the Premier League was created with greed at its heart. Yeah. It was created to make more money for football clubs and keep on evolving and evolving and evolving. And as long as that agenda, that relentless pursuit of money and all-consuming Pac-Man mentality of swallowing it and swallowing it and swallowing it continues, then you're going to continue to see greed manifest itself in all aspects of the game. But there must be responsibility. And the Premier League's cut-off mentality, because let's not forget, Danny, that 14% of the product that the Premier League takes comes from the Championship, and 14% of what the Premier League wants to get rid of, or has to get rid of by jeopardy for relegation, goes, but the greed and the thought process that they have no responsibility for the other pyramid of football is quite jarring to some extent. I mean, it is, of course, a pyramid that 99% of those clubs came out of. I think Everton and Arsenal can look at a non-relegation past, you know, uh, and say, we've always been in the upper echelon just about. It's extraordinary. I mean, I saw people suggesting 
that the Premier League clubs could bail out the Bury or Bolton, yeah. the clubs we talked about, in a heartbeat. And then, of course, you see the counter-argument. People say, well, you walk past a homeless person in your area and you don't offer them a room in your house. No, that's um, right. But I think that the relationship is very different, isn't it? No, it is. But I think, ultimately, if you set precedents like that, you start to create situations where people act even more irresponsibly than they currently do. But you talk about this greed, and I find myself just keep going off into different areas. Even when you bring outside influences into sport like accountants and administrators, their greed comes to the fore because the administration fees that administrators charge to go into football clubs are absolutely heinous. And they have to be paid out first and before everybody else, otherwise they won't take the gig. When you start to pick back the veneer of football and look at every aspect of it from what football clubs want, what players want, what agents want, to what peripheral outlets want. There's greed at the centre of all of it. Let, let me give you an example, if I may, for another world far, far away from the Premier League. I live in the Republic of Ireland, you know, and the professional football in Ireland is in a very bad place. It's dominated by two other sports, the Gaelic sports, um, but it is a professional sport, and uh, we all know that John Delaney is the operator yep. of the Irish football. Uh, the Irish Times this week come up with an amazing story that you'll enjoy. You'll warm your hands on it. Here we go, Simon. The champions who win, the, whoever wins the Irish Football League, their prize money for the year is £110,000. Recently, they took on a consultant to find out how they might raise money for a charity they wants to get involved with in the FAI. This guy came back with the idea of a charity walk. You could walk and get money along the way and get people to sponsor you. For this, in a league where the champions get £110,000, he was given three hundred grand. When people just get to football, wherever it is, yeah. they just think, oh, thank God, I'm here. Let the shower of money begin. I mean, it's incredible. No, it is absolutely that way. But there's also a great deal of leading on to another scenario that really used to make my blood boil. I know we're not doing anger. We did that last week. Yeah. But greed, when you think about what the Premier League have done to the Football League, and we talk about the drip-down effect, and then you think about, OK, that might be a natural casualty of meritocracy. What isn't a casualty of meritocracy is a disgrace that was foisted upon the Football League of solidarity payments being paid into the Football League by the Premier League as some sort of gift which actually turned into an obligation at some point for the Football League clubs to give up their compensation rights for young players because the Premier League, so awash with money, are so greedy about retaining that money, they don't actually want to pay any compensation for football clubs. Who used to have a fortune players. developing, by the way. Absolutely. And that sort of greed is absolutely unexplainable. Well, it's not unexplainable, it's inexcusable. When perhaps discussions about global warming and stuff like that come up, China's extraordinary powerhouse steel industry, steel coal industry, industry they, they all come up. And people uh, quite rightly say they shouldn't be polluting the air if they can avoid it. And other people say, but hang on, China needs to have its industrial revolution just as the countries in the yeah. West had their industrial revolution, which takes us to the Chinese Football League. Now, they're entitled to build their football league as quickly and as powerfully and as globally as they yeah. can. Why not? But the effect it's having around the rest of the leagues in Europe and with individuals and teams and players and managers is another example of how money, and that's the root of all of this, of course, causes greed to explode in the most extraordinary ways. China's entitled to do what it likes with its football league. Yeah. It's absolutely distorting What's happening in the West now, in our football leagues? Well, of course it is, because it's having a global drip-down effect as opposed to a domestic one. It's giving players an opportunity to leverage 
more from their current clubs. It's giving them a stalking horse. It's giving an agent another territory. I know it can be countenanced by the fact that the Chinese are limiting the amount of overseas players now because they want to build their own leagues. But at the centre of it is it's enabling greed. It's rewarding mediocrity. It's taking players at the end of their careers or players that are out of sorts elsewhere and giving them uh, inordinate amounts of money and just feeding the most basic of instincts, which is the one we're talking about now, which is greed. And greed, as we keep discussing, has various foibles about it. But the desire to go and play, for example, Gareth Bell, you're getting £600,000 a week or whatever it is to be an outsider in an elite football club. Yet somehow this corrosive influence of the Chinese marketplace that doesn't want to earn its place in the football market, just wants to buy it and just wants to be able to enable its opportunity, it doesn't want to wait for an organic growth or build it naturally. It wants to appeal to the worst side of football, which is basically, I'm going to give you a million pounds a week, Gareth Bell, at this stage in your career and put you to a question. Do you want to be a significantly serious football at 29 years of age and have a meaningful career? Or do you want to be a greedy little swine and go off to China and cheat your way through the rest of your career but get £50 million a year? I mean, the extraordinary thing for me, if we can get a bit sociological about it, it it's incredible, isn't it, that the, the last really big communist country has worked out the West to such an extent that actually mm. their idea of greedy capitalism they're testing the theory, and so far they're coming up trumps, yeah, aren't they? they? Are. It really they works, are. doesn't it? I mean, look, people like Tevez and Oscar and people like that, and many of the players who've gone for one year and just come back, just taking the mickey out of these people as well. breeds hypocrisy as well and breeds a narrative in sport where people get to hide behind their greed. Let's be clear. Rafa Benitez can dress it up any way he wants, but the reasons why he went to China is because he got £12 million a year. Ka-ching. And there has to be... You know, I've made a lot of money, Danny. I've made 100 million quid and I've lost just as much. And when you're motivated by greed, the outcome is always a slightly bleak one. It, there's success and there's achievement and there's money. And I've had success and achievement. I've had money. I know which one I prefer. I know, you know, you very rarely meet successful paupers. But at the front of everything should be success. And too much in sport and too much in football is about greed and the desire for a manifest destiny. Get what I can, when I can, now, irrespective of the cost of it. I think it's very easy to confuse greed and ambition. And Mm -hmm. I looked up and there's a philosophical study coming out of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, the established educational place that brought us both Alice Cooper and Iggy Pop. Um, so, you know, it's, it's got its, it's, it's, music reference, it's, it's, got it? its clientele organised. And they're, they're saying they, they've drawn this line which says that ambition is a powerful desire for something, but it's a powerful desire for success yeah. and for forward progress, yeah. whereas greed is a powerful desire, almost irresistible desire, for money and yeah. for power itself and so one thing is very good and the other thing as we say leads to and you're right at least all kinds of self-delusion I think we'll be we'll come back to some of the other big players in the greed Premier League if you like and don't worry football fans listening to us you'll be getting yours soon we'd be negligent in our duty if we didn't mention sometimes there are examples there may be exceptions of footballers who have at the very least offset their greed by some things they do one matter gives a percentage of his large earnings to charity. Yeah. We've seen Sadio Mane, who's already one of the busiest people in the world because he never seems to get a day off opening schools in his native Senegal, yeah. which are entirely, entirely dependent on his money to go into there. And at a, at a lower and local level, and I want to mention this because I think certain people may not know about it, Angel Rangel, mm. uh, apart from having one of the great names in football, when he's at Swansea, but everywhere he is, wherever he's at a club, on Christmas Day, Christmas Day, mind you, he goes out 
and distributes food and aid and blankets to homeless people. But just really thought we should mention that there are... And there is a flip side, yeah. and we are being very dark. I'm enjoying it. We're evaluating the seven deadly sins, so you can't be sitting with a plastic grin gurning no. at the upside of these things. But there are flip sides to the greed, which give you the light to the dark. You know, I will never, ever forget Jermaine Defoe with that oh. young boy. To my mind, that was something that was heart-wrenching to watch the young Bradley going through that experience and obviously ultimately losing his life. But you saw a footballer that I didn't always hold in the greatest regard. I, I had a certain view of Jermaine Defoe. What he brought to that boy's life, what that young boy got to see for a few moments in his life with his family was just something that only football and sport can bring. And, of course, that was nothing to do with money. Jermaine uh, gave him his time and attention, twice as valuable as any amount of money good, could have bumped him. if there is him. a good greed, we should have a greed and desire to see a lot more of that being replicated. Obviously not with the tragic outcome. I want to talk about the football governance of FIFA in a minute and, indeed, the football fans, but one more organisation or a thought about all this. At its very, very highest now, and I don't know whether it's greed or just the way high finance goes, and I hope you'll be able to help me with that, is that you get a situation now, and I'm sure fans listening to my voice will be biting their lip when I start talking about this. At the very top of all this, you've got a handful of super clubs and a handful of players who are themselves, as institutions, financial and cultural, bigger than most other football clubs, now locked in a kind of ugly carousel of achievement, non-achievement. The examples I give from just this summer, you've got Neymar. Neymar, Neymar, who, in many ways, the three ugliest football clubs in the world... Yeah, I was going to say that's a good analogy. ...are dragging dragging themselves to try and get this git to play for them. They kind of deserve one another, don't they? Almost. They kind of deserve one another. You mentioned Gareth Bale. You've got Sanchez, the most expensive ornament yep. you can buy yep. outside of the PFA's paintings collection, <laughs> um, sitting at Manchester United, waiting for another one of these super clubs to come and rescue him from his own largely self-inflicted palsy. It's, unedifi- it's unedifying, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you've got Mesut Ozil, whose wages alone have caused a whole raft of trouble, another yep. historic football club. I mean, at the very top level there, it's downright ugly, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's exactly the right word. It's unedifying, it's ugly... But it seems to be something that we accept. We sit here and we regale the world of our views and are fortunate enough to have the opportunity to be so verbose about it. But it just seems to be accepted. I find it ugly. I find it inelegant. I also find the fact that these people aren't simply worth what they're getting and they seem to be labouring under the illusion that this is what their entitlement is and that they should be able to do the bare minimum to achieve these things. I find beyond the pale. But it is when you look at Neymar, you call him a git. I just think he's a grubby little twerp, you know, at 200 million quid, you find yourself scratching your head and thinking, how does this really work? And this push-me-pull-me relationship that's going on between PSG or Barcelona or Real Madrid or whoever else wants to be in the market for this very, very talented footballer, but this leaves a lot to be desired for character and decency from what I can see from him. It makes you kind of think, is this what it's all about? Is this what it's all become? Because... It can't just be all about money. When you sit here and you close your eyes and you think of Berry and you think of Bolton, and it can't all just be about money. There has to be something more valuable in sport. When you look at Anthony Joshua disappearing to United Arab Emirates, to Saudi Arabia, to have this fight, you start to think the values that sport is supposed to uphold is being prostituted and compromised for just money. And money is the root of all evil. And greed comes from that. Of course it does. I wonder whether some of the 
atmosphere for this has been set by FIFA. And I know they've got off the back pages for us yep. a little while now, but I did notice a little story trickling through. Another one of uh, FIFA's uh, top representatives about two weeks ago got a minor slap on the wrist for another infraction of their rules which meant now that of the 24 men, and they were men, who gave the World Cup to Qatar and Russia, as far back as that, yeah. 21 of them have now been, been done. Yeah. Several of them um, are at Her, Her Majesty's pleasure or at the yeah. government's pleasure in the United States. Many of them have been banned from football and all the rest of it. Is it any wonder, Simon, that we can look at our industry and we love the football, we love the games Absolutely. and we love the footballers. Absolutely Is it any, right. any wonder that if you're getting that signal from the top... What chance do you have? Exactly right. If you're talking about the supposed gatekeepers, the leaders of sport, if you're talking about Blatter or Platini, whether they're allegations or proven or, or whether we can nail these so-called individuals or what I prefer to see jellies to a wall because that's what they're like, what example, what chance do you have for any integrity, any desire to be pure further down the line? We've gone from the ages of bungs being done on the side of motorways between so-called high-profile managers with greed and betrayal at the centre because you know greed has a betrayal in it somewhere along the line because it's normally getting something for nothing taking something you're not entitled to or over-egging the pudding and putting your self-interest ahead of yeah. the interest of the group or the institution that you purport to be part of and you look at these people in FIFA and you're absolutely right Danny when you look at these World Cups being awarded you look at the motivation for giving the Mexico USA World Cup being the 15 billion listen we're big boys we recognise the need for commerciality but there's a tipping point between commerciality and unadulterated greed. If that greed was for a greater good, if we were seeing the benefits of this greed, what we're seeing is greed is breeding corruption and bringing the whole And that's the worst. Because at the end of the day, we've talked about greed because that's yeah. the focus and the matrix of the Marathon Bet podcast that we're doing. But in the end, you say it often leads to self-delusion. What it always leads to is an amount of corruption. Absolutely. And it brings the whole house down on people's heads. And if we're talking about 21 of the 24 delegated, empowered entrusted representatives to harness and hold the world's game together in the biggest tournament were bought and paid for through their own greed. What are we saying about sport? I actually feel we should. We can probably afford now to get the three who are clean and take them out to dinner, Simon. Yeah, we absolutely. should do that. Absolutely. That's most, of, I think, the places where I think the greed is coming from and uh, who are greedy. But I think it would be unfair of us as well. We have to um, look at the fans. We have to. We, we have, have to, to look at the people fans. who listen to our voice. I'm a fan. You're a fan absolutely. of the game as well. There is a kind of mad greed with them as well. My colleague at the Talk Sport Radio, Andy Goldstein, is a, he often shocks me with his attitudes to things. But there was once when we were talking about clubs going to the wall and all the rest of it. And he says, he happens to support Manchester United. He does not And he says, I don't care how much money Manchester United spend. I want to spend all the money in the world. It's not my money. Yeah. And it got me thinking, we're all, and this is the problem, from... Nottingham Pork Butchers or Romania FC, who I've been thinking a lot about this yeah. week, a lower league club are in the FA Cup just now. Every fan of every club wants the owners, the institution, you, Simon, yeah. to spend, spend, spend. There's a kind of mad greed on the terraces and the seats as well, isn't there? There's an expectation and an entitlement that is irrational. And there is a, a desire for a success that 
sometimes exceeds the natural reach of a football club. And fans are equally responsible, to some extent, for the sustainability and the responsibility of what a football club should represent. And in this day and age, we're seeing an expectation level, a greed for the way teams should play, the way that teams should look, the way that teams should be financed, what they think their football club is entitled to. It's a balancing act between an expectation and a greed. And when the fans achieve something, the goalposts are endlessly moved. And that's a very difficult scenario to be in because... Sometimes they have this right, because we've discussed this before, and it's a catchphrase I've used before. Football's a unique business because sometimes you get to serve up crap and following week they still come back and buy some more of it. And that's very unique about football. But the idea that football fans should be screaming at people how to spend their money, should be screaming at their expectation level, I found unpalatable, not just because I was a former owner. I found it unpalatable before I even bought a football club. I just think it's beyond the pale of what a fan has a right to do. They have an expectation, they have a desire, and they have an ambition for their club. But an entitlement alongside the belief that people should be endlessly spending money to achieve what these people think they're entitled to is a kind of greed that makes me uncomfortable, albeit... I have a degree of empathy with the fans' perspective. You have a few years on me, but the, this is something I think has come into the game. When I was growing up, I wanted the club I happened to support, Tottenham Hotspur, to do well. I didn't think they had to do well. I didn't think I could berate... Was he called Sid Whale, the owner, when I was a kid? I didn't think I could berate Sid Whale from my place on the terrace. It's part of the modern world, though, now. It's a sense of entitlement, isn't it? It is, and it's coming from somewhere. I'm not quite sure, but top of football and all the rest of it. The problem with these things, Simon, is that people say, oh, everything's cyclical. I'm not sure this is cyclical. I'm not sure we'll ever go back to a place where people were happy, content to play football, be well paid for it, but enjoy the game, watch the game without worrying about what your neighbours were doing and will do envy as one of the deadly sins very, very soon in this series. I think the cat and the genie are out of the oh, they are. bag a, and the bottle, that's respectively. A, that's a bell you can't unring now. But the avarice and greed of players is fueled by the insistence of fans that believe that there should be an endless investment curve and if this player doesn't do it, get rid of him, who cares what it costs, get the next one. It's a different kind of greed. It's a kind of irresponsibility that fuels greed. Fans' as attitude towards their entitlement is not in its finest form greed, but it fuels the greed behind the game that brings people into it that shouldn't be there in the first place or gives people rewards that they're not entitled to. Okay, well, listen, thank you very much, Simon Moore. Thank you all for listening to the Marathon Bet podcast. I know, I know what you're thinking. I'd love to hear more of that award-winning stuff about greed, but that in itself, my friends, would just be greedy. Now, coming up, myself and Simon will be choosing our Sinner of the Week. They will be people who could be going into our sin bin to represent the sin of greed. Before that, though, at the other end of the human activity scale, it's the Marathon Bet charity bet each week. A Marathon Bet give us a certain amount of money to put on the outcome of three football matches, and hopefully we'll be giving a pile of money to chosen charities. I have to say, this is quite a high bar because we have to get all three results right to get the money from Marathon Bet. On the other hand, I also say they were very lenient last season, and even though we got none of them right hardly, they've still managed to give a significant amount of money to the charities that Simon and I chose. And Dan from Marathon Bet is here with us, will give us the odds on those, and I'm going to go first, actually, and against all information coming to me from the north of England, and of course, Dan, you're a Brighton fan, so you'll be happy to say that my first pick is that Manchester United will win on the south coast and beat Southampton. Yes, I was at the game on Saturday, Brighton versus Southampton. Obviously, Brighton went down to 10 men... 
hang on, if that foul was so bad, Dan, I think you should have sent two Brighton players off. It wasn't great, was it? It no, wasn't I, great. I, I, I'll give you that. However, I think Brighton were on top during that period. Personally, not just because what happened Saturday, I think Southampton might struggle. So yep. Man United at 11-10, to 10, I think a good bet. OK, then secondly, I'm going to go down to the Championship. And again, going a little bit against um, Dan, against uh, form, Leeds are top and rocking. But I saw Swansea at the weekend and I thought they've returned to the spirit of the football that served them so well over the past decade. They seem to have got the club back into its correct direction. And I think Swansea will get a point at Ellen Road. Good shout. Uh, Leeds obviously had a very good result again at the weekend, 3-0 away at Stoke. Because they're really good. They are really good. Nathan Jones is under a bit of pressure as well at Stoke, but you're right in what you're saying about Swansea. And uh, I think they could do well this season and a draw at 57-17. OK, and finally, and uh, I'm obviously I'm trying to uh, bring a little bit of joy into my own life here, Tottenham Hotspur, people may not have recognised, haven't won an away game, I think in any competition since January. And that's two-thirds of the year. This week, they take their unworthy wares to the other side of North London. I've got Spurs to win at Arsenal. They've got to stop the rot somewhere. What a better place to start than at the Emirates? They have got to stop soon. I think, as a Spurs fan, are you worried about Poch going? Because the rumours and the murmurs that he keeps mentioning... He could be gone by Christmas. For a person who eschews all negativity, we know he keeps this famous bowl of lemons on his desk because he believes it absorbs negative energy. He's been himself quite negative at the start of this season. Yeah, I'm worried about it. I'm worried about it because I can see from the football team they're not firing on even half pistons yet, are they? No. But I dare say they're outsiders at the weekend as well. They are, 49 to 25. So altogether, Danny, your bet for a £10 bet will pay £270. Almost certain to come in, I reckon. Let's hope so. Let's yeah. hope so. 26 to 1, so a £10 bet pays £270. And we're best priced in all those three selections. Are you? Yep. Fantastic. What about you, Sam? What have you gone for? I've gone for three games of which I have some sort of emotional investiture in. Given the fact that they beat your mob mm-hmm. last week at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, I, I'm feeling that Watford's current run of form, pressure, Javier Grazia is coming under. And also, this is a game that's a precursor to some very difficult games for Newcastle and Brucey. Given he was my old manager, I'm tipping Newcastle to beat Watford at Newcastle on Saturday. I don't think any of us saw that coming on the weekend, did they? No. Nope. Spurs to know he's at home to Newcastle. Maybe they've turned a corner. They're 31-20 to 20 to beat Watford at home. As we mentioned last week's podcast, Watford are in terrible form. The amount yeah. of goals that they're leaking And terrible well. form that's leaked from last season, if you think yeah, about how they ended last year. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. So they are in uh, dire straits at the moment, so Newcastle could be a good value bet at home. The next one is going to appear to be the most treacherous turncoat sort of behaviour but I can't help myself Simon, going in people, this direction people would not accuse you of being two-faced because if you were you wouldn't wear that one in public would that's you? right good point Danny good point well made the old ones are always the best aren't they <laughs> but I've got a feeling I like Aston Villa you know I like them as a football club they're playing my team the team I used to own the one that my father used to play for when I grew up supporting all my life but I just feel that Villa with this centre forward John Wesley the way that they're playing at this moment in time the fact they turned Everton over and no mugs and the way that Palace play which is a counter-attacking side and they're going to have to go and make this game slightly against Aston Villa I just got a feeling a bad feeling but from a betting purpose some thinking behind it that I think Villa are going to beat Palace at Sellers Park Wow. So I'm going against all my instincts of traditional loyalty and looking at the outcome being... But you're not being a fool because Palace are the opposite to Spurs. Palace pick up their points away from home. Their yeah. team is designed. And I mean, they're planning on breaking both home and away. And I think Palace don't know whether to stick or twist at home because they are a counter-attacking side and there's no home side 
support Soy, wants to see you sitting in like Roy Hodgson does, waiting for somebody else to do something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Villa were good value for their winner on Friday night against Everton. Just on a side, did you see Andres Townsend's tweet back to the, I did. the club? About what, what about Wilfred Zaha? About Wilfred Zaha and yeah. Ashley Young. I think, going what we're talking about, about the deadly sins, I thought that was quite respectful of Andres Townsend. I did. I also thought it was a bit pious. I yeah, at the I, end of the day, perhaps it could be seen as Crystal Palace cherishing the skills that Wilfred Zaha has rather than ridiculing the failings of Ashley Young. Yeah. Also, you know, Andros, mate, you know, it's, it's, it's a tiny joke. You wouldn't want to... Oh, no. At the moment, I'm, I'm crossed him off by a Christmas party list. I don't think he might be a laugh, and Andros. And also, Ashley Young can go poke it because he scored two goals against us in the playoff semi-final in 2005 and probably ended up costing me 50 million quid. So he's the least of my concerns. OK, moving on. Villa at Palace, they're 123 to 50. As we said, they were good value for their win at Everton. And I think despite Palace's win at Man United... At the weekend, Villa are looking quite strong and I think they get stronger as the weeks go on. My final choice is I'm going to dip into the Championship because not all football just exists in the Premier League. And I'm going to go to another one of my old managers, Neil Warnock and Cardiff at Fulham. I had the misfortune of going to see Cardiff play Fulham at Craven Cottage at the back end of last season, which was an absolutely turgid affair. A cure Two terrible teams a in the worst insomnia. form possible, yeah. You know, Ryan Babble scored a world in that game, but the rest of it was a cure for insomnia. This particular game, Cardiff have been on the back of a couple of bad defeats. If I know my old manager, he'll be in the ribs of those players. Fulham, you know, look a nice side on paper. Scott Parker's learning his trade, perhaps at the expense of Shahid Khan. We'll, we'll see. I just fancy Cardiff to win this game. Yeah, Simon, your three selections uh, pay just over 23 to 1. So for a £10 bet, you'll be paid £230. And similar to Danny's, we're best price on that. So visit mouthandbet.co.uk or download the app to copy Simon and Danny's selections. Yeah, thank you very much indeed for that, Dan. It means, of course, hopefully we can do a little better than last week where we got some of the results right, but not enough to leave the money out of Marathon Bet. Though, of course, we're pretty complacent, Simon and I, because last year they caved and gave us the money anyway. <laughs> OK, let's end then by uh, adding two more figures uh, to our sin bin each week. We match the sins that Simon and I discuss to two people who represent them either permanently or just this week. By the end of the run, we'll have got a lovely squad of footballers together to make a perfect team from. Simon, we're talking about greed this yeah. week. Who is uh, your sinner that you're going to put into the... Uh... I'm going to micromanage it, Dan, rather than oh. go global and look at the Gareth Bells or whoever else you might talk about. I'm going to take a specific player and people might say, well, you're always having to go at this player. But Pogba's greed on the ball and his flash turn in the middle of the park cost Man United when they've got themselves back in the game because they lost possession. Immediately, Palace went up the field and scored the third goal, which, you know, maybe takes the tarnish off my tag of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer being the luckiest Norwegian alive. Yeah, OK, you're going for Paul Pogba. I mean, I'm going to go for his teammate, or certainly club mate, because he doesn't get anywhere the team, Alexis Sanchez. Now, whether or not Sanchez um, finds the clubs take him in the next few days into Milan, uh, seem to be planning to, to catch up with Juventus in Serie A by buying all Manchester United's problems. But his greed has got him into the place that he is. He was wanted by Manchester City, the best club team probably in the world, but with Liverpool maybe uh, uh, barking at their heels. But out of pure extra few shillings, he decided to sign for a Manchester United team that was in turmoil already, and his attitude has led to even more turmoil there. So for me, the person who at the moment best sums up the sin of greed, and I don't know the fella from Adam, I can only see by the actions he's taken, which has led into an unfortunate place when he should be at the peak of his career, is Alexis Sanchez. 
Okay, as I say, over the course of the uh, remainder of this uh, series, the Marathon Bet podcast, we will be building up more players to go into our sin bin to get to our ultimate squad. Uh, thank you for listening to this edition of the Marathon Bet podcast with me, Danny Kelly, and Simon Jordan. We'll be back next week with another deadly sin. We don't even know what it is yet. Marathon Bet. Better odds mean bigger winnings. 18 plus. Begambleaware.org.